we come to Mass, it is good that we prepare our hearts and our minds, of course. One way that we can do so is to read the Gospel before we come to Mass. But I would propose, if we have 10 or 15 uh, extra minutes, or we should carve those out, if we would, during the week, not only to read the Sunday Gospel, but during this ordinary time as we have a continuous reading this year of Luke, but in year A, Matthew, and in year B, the Gospel according to St. Mark, of reading the Sunday before, the current Sunday, and the Sunday after. Because what we might find is that we see a greater perspective on an arc of teaching, if you will. That it's not just one pericope of the Gospel that we get to meditate upon that Sunday but it fits within a greater discourse that our Lord is imparting to his disciples. So last week, our Lord spoke to his disciples about praying always without growing weary, praying always throughout evil that they are in the midst of. This week, he's teaching them to pray with humility. In next week, he'll use the character of Zacchaeus to show us that we must seek him out in prayer, even amidst the busyness and crowdedness of our daily activities. And so three weeks in which our Lord is teaching us the right way to pray. Last month was four weeks of discipleship, the characters of discipleship. And so he calls the disciples, right? He teaches the disciples, and then he sends them out. And then prayer in the last, in these weeks. Two months ago, stewardship. And so we're not just listening to the gospel each week saying, what newness does our Lord have? But we're looking at those three gospels saying, how far does God want to draw me in to his son's teachings? Today's gospel, our Lord gives us the image of two men who are in prayer. One announces his good works. He announces that he has fulfilled his religious obligations. And he says, God, look at me. And then the second simply declares his unworthiness. We all like to think that we're the second one. We're the second man. But unfortunately, when we look at the way that we pray, many times we find ourselves more like the first. A number of months ago, I walked into my own parish church early in the morning to unlock it to say my morning prayers. And as I went to the baptismal font, because in my church we have a font that has running water that runs down into a pool, I went to take holy water to cross myself. And I saw a stack of papers on the baptismal font. And it was a thick stack, and I picked them up, and it had at the top, St. Jude Novena. And I said, well, I like St. Jude. He was a pretty good guy. He's an apostle. He's a saint. And then under it, it had instructions. And it said, pray this Novena six times a day for nine consecutive days. And each day, leave nine copies in the church. And your prayer will be answered. It's never been known to fail. Incredible. I've never heard of this. I've been praying wrong my whole life. Because God many times says no to me when I tell him what I want. But now that I have this novena, 
prayer is going to be different. It's going to be wonderful. He will grant everything that I want as long as I pray this six times a day for nine days and leave nine copies in the church. So I had to have those novenas. I picked them up and I threw them in the trash. Because that is not prayer. Prayer is not a pay-to-play system for God. I was telling the deacon beforehand, when I found this out and I was talking to some of my daily mass parishioners trying to figure out who's doing this, I said it's like saying, well, if we rub our bellies and pat our heads when we pray and stick our tongue out the right way, God must answer our prayer. It doesn't work like that. One time I was speaking with the parents of a student who was dealing with paralytic anxiety, crippling anxiety. And I said, the only way that we are going to be able to get through this is being able to find the right person who can counsel your daughter. And the dad, the parents, are very pious, and I don't fault them at all, and they said, well, what if we just bring her to the school and she can go to the chapel earlier and just pray more? They said, you're not going to pray your way through this. Because there are times in which God does not remove difficulty and suffering from our life because he needs us to cooperate with his grace. And he allows it in our life so we might be perfected and we might grow strong. And that was the lesson of last week's gospel. When our Lord teaches them to pray always without losing heart, without growing weary. But the Greek word for weary that was translated as weary is enkakeo, which means in the midst of evil. Without losing heart while they're in the midst of evil. We should entrust our cares and our difficulties to God. But we should not expect him to solve them. God does not fix problems. He fixes hearts. This happens a lot when someone comes into the confessional. And usually by the tone of voice, priests can hear it right away. They're coming to confession because they've had some crisis in their life. And as they're confessing their sins, we start to recognize, okay, this person is going through something difficult, it's been a long time since they've gone to confession, and they think that a good confession will fix their problems. And we have to gently remind them, this does not change the circumstances of your life, it changes your heart to face them with the strength of Christ. So our Lord gives the point of the parable. He says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. Great, so I need humility in my life. I need to pray with humility. The word humility comes from humus in Latin, meaning dirt or earth. To place oneself in the dirt. To lower oneself to the ground. To prostrate oneself in the soil. In a practical way, when we speak of humility, we see the signs of it. In the liturgy, such as covering things that have worth, that have dignity. You'll see when the servers bring the chalice to the altar, it's covered. And it's unveiled for its sacred use. Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. The priest wraps himself with the humeral veil and his hands are covered. Many people think the humeral veil so that you don't touch the... No, the priest has anointed hands that can touch the sacred vessels. They're anointed for that purpose, but his hands are covered. The priest humbles himself with a humeral veil to show that it is not his hands imparting the blessing, it's Christ himself. In the old Dominican rite, when the priest and the ministers would sit down and they would place their hands on their laps, the servers would cover them with a cloth. 
recognizing the sacred dignity of our body and what it means to communicate ourselves to another person, we cover ourselves. Modesty is an integral part of the virtue of humility. And so we cover ourselves and we only unveil ourselves when it's time for our body to communicate itself within the sacrament of marriage, spouse to spouse. But spiritually, when it comes to prayer, humility has two characteristics, two concepts that we don't like to think about, but our Lord is placing it right before us. The first is that we depend upon God for everything. Everything. All that we are and all that we have, we ultimately depend upon God for. And then secondly, the stark reality that we deserve nothing from God. By our own merit, we deserve nothing. So when we have a lack of humility in our heart, we see God only as a dispenser of what we want. We see him as a grandfather who dotes upon us. We see God as a wish granter. And when we don't get what we want, we pitch a fit and we go away from him. I don't have time for prayer because it has no effect in my life. But if we recognize that we depend upon God for everything and we deserve nothing from God, that true humility leads us into a true love for him and a resignation to his will, which is the prayer of Job. Do thou, Lord, tear up or build up or tear down all according to your will. That love of God in which we do not go to him in our prayer seeking to justify ourselves. We don't give him a list of our successes and our victories because ultimately they're because of him. We don't go before him and read our curriculum vitae and all the things that we've done in our life that makes us so successful and makes us such an expert and professional. And certainly we don't go before him and say, Lord, if you grant this, I promise to do this because in his foresight, he knows we're weak and we're not going to do it. How many times have we promised our Lord something? And there's a good success, and then we go, thanks, Lord, and then we don't actually change our lives to accord with his will. God doesn't desire any of that. He desires only one thing, and that is the offering of ourselves to him with complete abandon, with complete generosity, opening our hearts, even to the ugliness of that dark place that we don't want to share with him. All that he asks is for our whole lives. We see this in the history of the Israelites, where they ask God for many things. And all that he says, come back to me with your whole heart. Be faithful to my commandments. They're like, yeah, 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 just give us freedom from Pharaoh. Just give us food and um, water in the desert because we're thirsty and we're hungry. He gives them the manna. And they say, Lord, we're sick of this. Give us something else. Give us a home. He says, I will take you to the promised land. And he says, give us a king. And he said, well, I'm your king. No, we want, we want a human king. We want to be like the other nations. And finally, God relents. He says, fine, pick somebody. And then in the end, what does the father do? He sends the son. They're not expecting it. They want someone to overthrow the Romans, to make them the greatest nation on earth. 
And so the Messiah comes, and many of them miss him because they're not expecting that God would give his whole self to the world. So the son comes, as St. Paul says so beautifully in the hymn in Philippians. He abandons himself. He humbles himself. He puts himself at risk, and he is crucified. So if the son shows this complete abandon, this complete pouring out, this complete giving of himself to us, if we desire to imitate him, we must imitate that abandonment of our whole selves to God. We depend on God for everything, and in turn, we deserve nothing. So what is his response? How does he maintain this relationship? He maintains it in the gift of the Holy Eucharist, the gift of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Because he humbles himself, he abandons himself, he places himself at risk again and again and again, not in a manger, on our altars. He gives him his whole self to us. And here, in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, he invites us to renew the offering of our very selves, the power of which to offer ourselves we received in baptism. That is the gift of the common priesthood, to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. He doesn't ask for our promises. He doesn't ask for our successes, for our failures. He doesn't even ask for our wallets. Your pastor does that plenty, I'm sure. He desires our lives. He desires the wholeness of our heart. And we would be foolish. We'd be fools to offer him anything less at the same moment that in this Mass he gives us his whole self. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.